welcome to Disrupting Disruptions, the podcast of the feminist and accessible publishing, communications, and technologies practices speaker and workshop series. Today's episode features Dr. Sarah Myers West of the AI Now Institute speaking about AI and intersectionality. This series seeks to bring together scholars, creators, and people in industry working at the intersections of digital humanities, computer science, feminist studies, disability studies, communication studies, LGBTQ studies, history, and critical race theory. The series will bring forward critical approaches to publishing practices, communication strategies, and techniques for making research dissemination more accessible. Part of the motivation of this series is that while humanities and social science scholars will critique quote-unquote traditional academic publishing and communication strategies as being sexist, classist, racially biased, and inaccessible, the kinds of solutions proffered, such as open access and, allegedly, innovative new technologies, often romanticize and fetishize technological alternatives and do not look at how inequity can be perpetuated or only shifted, especially at the level of algorithms. The series is organized by Dr. Alex Ketchum of the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at McGill University, and all events have taken place in Montreal, Canada, on unceded Ganingahaga territory. This podcast makes our events accessible to a larger audience. Full transcripts and video links are available at our website, disruptingdisruptions.com. Today's episode with Dr. Sarah Myers West was the ninth event of the series and took place on September 19th, 2019. Dr. Sarah Myers West is a postdoctoral researcher at the AI Now Institute of New York University and affiliate researcher at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Her research centers on the critical study of technology and culture with an emphasis on historical and ethnographic methods. She is currently working on a project that addresses the politics of diversity and inclusion in technological communities by exploring the nexus of artificial intelligence gender, and intersectionality. She received her doctoral degree from the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California in 2018, where her dissertation examined the cultural history and politics of encryption technologies from the 1960s to the present day. Her work is published in academic journals such as New Media and Society, Policy and Internet, Business and Society, and the Internet Policy Review. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for uh, having me today. I honestly feel really honored to be asked to take part in this speaker series um, and to be in the company of scholars and advocates who have deeply shaped so much of my own work um, and and understanding of this this area. And thanks very much to Alexandra for putting together this series and to all of you for coming tonight. This is a really, really fantastic group. So my name is Dr. Sarah Myers-West. I'm with the AI Now Institute, which is a research institute based out of New York University. Um, And I've titled my talk today, Discriminating Systems, Examining the Social Implications of Artificial Intelligence. Um, And I want to take us, I want to start by taking a step back to talk through what we actually mean by artificial intelligence. It's a word that kind of gets thrown around a lot. It's very buzzy um, and to bring us all kind of to the, the same space of understanding. So often when we think about AI, these are the images that pop into our heads. They're sentient machines that are designed to replicate human intelligence and ultimately to surpass it. And we do have something that's kind of along those lines in devices like Siri and Alexa. But as you know, these systems are still pretty unsophisticated. I don't know if any of you have, have had frustrations trying to talk to Siri um, recently. Um, and they're really nothing close to what the movies tell us that AI is. Um, and in some ways, that might be reassuring. More often than not, AI, as it's being used in the world around us, doesn't really look very much like human intelligence. And in fact, as uh, folks like Meredith Broussard have pointed out, often these systems are fairly unintelligent. Most AI systems, as used today, rely on applying statistical methods to very large amounts of data, looking for patterns in order to make predictions about future events. 
And this is how AI is currently being deployed across a wide range of domains, and, and often in ways that are much less visible to us. So when we buy something at a store, for example, artificial intelligence might be at work in determining the price of the goods on the shelves or what, assessing what needs to be restocked. It's used to evaluate what products we're buying, um, to offer us coupons, to try and get us to come back. Um, and AI systems might be at work, for example, in shaping the traffic patterns as we drive home, um, or telling us the optimal route um, for how we get there. And those are all pretty mundane examples. Um, but we also see AI being used in ways that are much more deeply consequential. Uh, in healthcare settings, AI might be used to make recommendations for cancer treatments. Um, it might be used to determine who receives, um, in the U.S., Medicaid uh, benefits. It can determine where our kids go to school. It can determine whether or not someone will go to jail um, before they're sentenced for a crime. <coughs> Let me dive a little deeper into what this looks like. Um, so it was recently revealed that Amazon had developed an internal hiring tool that would help the company to rank and assign scores to resumes that candidates submitted for open positions. And the idea was that they could train the system to help it uh, surface the best candidates. They received an awful lot of resumes every year. Um, and they were looking for who would be the best fit for Amazon based on data from past hiring decisions. Kind of similar to how Amazon makes recommendations for you know, what book you might want to buy next based on your, your past browsing habits. The goal was that through the system they'd be able to surface the best talent and in so doing also try and reduce the likelihood of bias. But what they found was that this system learned to downgrade candidates who had attended all, certain <coughs> universities. Um, and in fact, to downgrade others for even mentioning the word woman in, in their resume. Now, the engineers developing the system tried to apply techniques to uh, reduce the bias, but they found that it was basically baked too deeply into the system for it to work. Um, they couldn't develop a functional system without discriminating, and ultimately they ended up scrapping it entirely. This was not ultimately put into practice. What does this example teach us? For one, it illustrates a principle of garbage in, garbage out. The training data that Amazon used was based on past hiring decisions, and it probably comes as no surprise to all of you that the company's engineering workforce is made up predominantly of men. This is why qualities associated with women were downranked in the system. It was identifying patterns and replicating those patterns. But it also shows how difficult it is to build an unbiased AI system. It's a really difficult, complex problem. Amazon employs some of the world's leading machine learning researchers, and after applying you know, cutting-edge techniques in, in data science, they couldn't produce a system that wasn't discriminatory. So what does that sort of leave the rest of us to do? So at the AI Now Institute, we're engaged with studying the consequences and social implications of AI as it's being deployed across a wide range of domains. We have an interdisciplinary team of researchers working on hiring, on education, on the environment, on healthcare, um, security, criminal justice. Um, we act as a hub for the emerging uh, field of research that's focused on these issues. Um, we're the world's first research institute that's devoted to studying the, the social implications of AI, um, and we remain the first and only AI institute to be uh, founded and run by two women. And given where I stand today, it's maybe worth talking briefly about how we are approaching this research. Um, we really strongly believe that in order to understand this field, it's really critical to draw on all of the methodological tools available to us. Uh, and in particular, we believe that the social sciences and humanities have a really critical role to play uh, in helping us make sense of our technological presence in the future. And so although AI is often positioned as a STEM field, um, the field's history actually is a very rich interdisciplinary crossroads of psychology, of behavioral science, of anthropology, and philosophy. Um, but we also see across this history of practiced erasure of the contributions of women, of trans people, of people of color, 
Um, and so in the work that I'm presenting today, I think it, it surfaces um, the need to render more visible this, this work in the history of AI, that this is actually central to the field. Um, and, and I think that there is a, a clear need for feminist scholarship in this space. Um, so just to preview what I'll be discussing, um, this is a pilot study um, that forms the first year of my postdoctoral research at AI Now. Um, and it forms the background of a larger research program that I'm leading at AI Now, examining the dynamics of gender, race, and power in AI. Um, and I'll be honest, when I first uh, you know, approached doing this landscaping study, I expected that I wouldn't find that much. I thought that I was going to find gaps. Um, and what I found was really a very rich historical vein of, of scholarship that for decades has identified these, these issues of diversity in the field. Um, so we read over 150 peer-reviewed studies, um, but I also really want to foreground that knowing that there was this history of erasure, um, we wanted to value informal knowledge creation. That, um, the ability to, to publish scholarly work um, is an area that can be policed. Um, and so we wanted to also look at informal knowledge. Um, so I found blog posts, like medium posts, by people working um, in tech companies to be a really rich place to go to understand what's happening, um, especially in the present day. Um, I looked at reports, I looked at press articles, um, and, and uh, found that to be a really rich space. Um, and what we found is, is really that AI is in the midst of a diversity crisis. And you might be familiar with the diversity challenges in the tech industry overall. Um, in 2013, the share of women in computing dropped to 26%, and that's below the levels of uh, representation of women uh, in 1960. Uh, so 2013, it dropped below 19, 1960 levels. Um, almost half of women that go into technology currently eventually leave the field, and that's more than double the number of men that depart. Um, and we found ample evidence uh, spanning decades that things in AI look much worse than computer science overall. So these are a few recent statistics. Um, across a handful of the leading AI conferences, 18% um, of authors are women. 80% of AI professors are men. Um, women comprise only 15% of AI research staff at Facebook, currently 10% at Google. We don't have any uh, public data currently available on, on the trans community in the field. Uh, things look even worse when you take race into consideration. Um, so at Google, uh, the highest rate of attrition among workers is, is among black employees. Um, at the, the percentage rates are, are pretty abysmal um, uh, across uh, racial categories. But there's way more to the story than what statistics can show us. Um, we see this crisis as it unfolds across uh, um, all of the biggest players that are involved in developing AI today. Um, from a class action suit led by Microsoft workers alleging a, system, a systematic failure to take allegations of harassment and discrimination seriously. <laughs> to a federal investigation into gender discrimination at Uber, to Apple's dismissal of concerns about its lack of workplace diversity as a solvable issue, um, while also at the same time saying that proposals for uh, adopting diverse hiring practices would be too burdensome. An audit of Google's pay practices found six to seven standard deviations between pay for men and women across almost every job category. Um, and I won't get into it, but we can talk about the phenomenon of under-leveling in the q and Like, this is an area, this is, I think, a really critical area to, to be looking at. Um, black employees at Facebook have recounted being aggressively treated by campus security and dissuaded from taking part in black at, uh, group activities. Um, and a lawsuit at Tesla is alleging gender discrimination in a hostile work environment where one employee uh, recounted that there were more men named Matt in her group than there were women. <laughs> so clearly, we know that there's a problem, and the evidence is not really the issue here. Uh, 
And in fact, in doing this work, I found mountains of studies that were focused just on the question of the pipeline. Um, this is a term that's used often in industry to refer to the absence of diverse candidates in the hiring pool. And it's often used uh, by firms to justify why they can't hire, uh, they can't achieve diversity, and it's allegedly because of scarcity. Um, so here are a few examples of what that literature looks like. Um, you see titles like, why are there so few women computer scientists? Where have all the girls gone? Um, what draws women to and keeps women in computing? Why do some gender gaps remain while others do not? And a personal favorite, will computer engineer Barbie impact young women's career choices? Um, so these studies rely predominantly on survey-based research that's conducted in educational settings, almost always in universities, university undergrad classes, universities on coasts in the US that are predominantly elite universities. Um, and they, they try to understand the factors that lead to gender-based discrimination in computer science, um, more precisely by trying to interrogate what drives people away from the field, um, and implicitly what might make them stay. Um, and I also want to note that these studies largely treat gender as a binary phenomenon. Um, which would erase the experiences of members of the trans community. Um, and they also don't acknowledge the ways in which forms of oppression intersect. Um, that people are impacted differently uh, when you also take into account differences in race, class, and ability among other characteristics. And what this means is that all of the women in tech initiatives that come out of this work implicitly benefit white women over all others. Um, so there is there is work being done in the way that these studies are, are positioning. Although certainly, like they're an important starting point. Um, so they center the role of culture and suggest that a student's self-assessment of whether they're a good fit with the field is likely to influence whether they'll leave computing. Um, and it's intertwined with stereotypes of computer scientists as singularly focused asocial, competitive, and male. Um, and they, they assert that women tend to persist in computer science when they reject and find alternatives to the dominant culture. Um, so although they make a contribution that helps us understand the factors that influence participation in technical fields, there are a lot of limitations that go unacknowledged in the way that these studies are taken up in larger discourses. Um, for one, they rely on samples of convenience. There are often surveys that are conducted in, in classroom settings, sometimes by the professor who is leading the class, um, which could have an influence on the responses to the surveys. Um, they're self-reported data, um, and they often have pretty small sample sizes, like uh, often around 30 or so people um, from one university in a particular place and, and uh, time. Um, they also place the onus for change on those who are discriminated against. Um, and that raises the question of what's the work that these studies are doing. They're a fairly narrow frame through which to view potential barriers to inclusion. Um, and they largely address the solutions toward educators. And although that's certainly a critical uh, gateway, um, it's not an excuse not to address discrimination in recruiting um, environments, in the workplace, to address actually existing racism, ableism, and misogyny. Um, and so in the report, we argue that diversity <coughs> initiatives really need to be accompanied by efforts to address workplace cultures and the logics of how technical systems are designed, the cultures of exclusion that have been very frequently documented but that remain woefully unaddressed. I, I remember seeing one study that looked at the philanthropy initiatives of, I think it was 27 leading tech companies, um, and they found that 0.4% of all philanthropic giving in 2017 went specifically toward initiatives geared toward women of color. So that was $350,000 across 27 tech companies. Um, in a year that went to initiatives focused on women of color. So that's, that's like a drop in the bucket when you look at, at um, companies' profits. 
So despite the volume of these studies, despite the relative consistency of their findings, we, we really don't see that much substantive change. And in fact, you can see similar trends historically. Um, so you may already know that computer programming um, was originally seen as, as women's work. Um, and it was when programming began to be seen as a professionalized and expert domain that was gendered male. Um, as Mark Hicks writes, um, throughout history, it has often not been the content of the work, but the identity of the worker performing it that has determined its status. Let's take a step back for a moment. What I've just traced here um, is that discrimination in the field of AI is, is extensive, there's ample evidence to support it, and that has a very long history. Um, but I want to shift gears to talk a little bit about the consequences as we see them emerging in AI technologies themselves. So I started talking earlier about digital voice assistants like Siri and Alexa. And a UNESCO <coughs> report that was released recently um, talked about how these assistants are perpetuating gender biases because of the way that we relate to these devices. They, they say that these devices, which are, you know, tend to have uh, feminine voices by default, sort of position our relationship to them in, in which women are, are situated in a position of servitude, and that the, the <coughs> micro-interactions that we have on a daily basis um, accumulate over time in ways that will perpetuate gender biases. Um, and if you look across the entire product category, nearly all such products are gendered. Feminine, um, and this is a particular cultural choice. These companies have like very lengthy biographies of like who Siri is, or like Cortana. I think if you look at the bio for how Cortana is envisioned, she's like um, the child of two professors, one of whom is like a historian, and the other one's an economist. And she grew up in like New York, but then she's traveled all these other places. And, like these are really rich, rich. Uh, like imaginaries that are developed around these systems, um, and they're very particular. And if you look across different countries, these defaults don't necessarily hold. Um, so there are countries in which uh, the feminine default is actually masculine, and that's in relation to culture. Um, and so we might consider, well, why is it that this default is the, the one that we see uh, up in, in the vast majority of the markets in which these systems are used. Well, for one, this is a perpetuation of gender dynamics that have existed for a really long time. Um, the earliest tests of voice recognition software literally couldn't hear women because they were developed in labs where the voices that they were testing on were largely the voices of men. Another pro computer program that you might have seen this, this study by ProPublica, if you haven't, I really encourage you to take a look at the story, um, illustrates the racialized dynamics that you can see <coughs> in AI systems. Um, so Compass is a computer program that was designed to predict the likelihood of recidivism. So the likelihood that someone who is accused of a crime or who committed a crime is likely to commit that same crime again. Um, and it was used uh, by judges to determine the amount to set bail at, because you want to set a higher bail for someone who you think is going to go out and commit a crime again. Um, and ProPublica found that not only did the Compass system exhibit racial biases, but those racial biases were very frequently wrong. Um, it was both an ineffective system, and it was also a discriminatory system. <laughs> These concerns also have important implications for our safety on the roads. So Uber is testing out using self-driving vehicles at several locations in the US, and in 2018, one of these cars hit and killed a pedestrian. Um, this is, uh, as you can see from this image, um, the pedestrian was wheeling a bike across the road. And the computer vision software um, didn't really know how to make sense of this image. It, it you know, it uses, uh, it looks at, at the lines on the road, at the street signs, um, but it, it had trouble recognizing this one because it was an image that it wasn't, uh, it hadn't encountered before. 
Um, and the scholar Karen Nakamura has described how this case study is really concerning for members of the disability community. Um, because what does this image look a lot like? Um, autonomous vehicles um, have trouble recognizing bodies that move differently through the world. Um, and that's a deep safety concern. So I could give you many, many more examples of discriminatory systems from soap dispensers that can't see skin with darker skin pigmentation to cancer screeners that have higher failure rates to detect cancer in black patients because they're trained on data sets of predominantly white patients. Um, in some of my ongoing work, I'm looking at um, the development of a class, well, what I'm, I'm positioning as a class of computer vision systems that try and make inferences about your innate qualities on the basis of your physical appearance. Um, so things like race and gender recognition systems that are developed with very specific ideas of what race and gender are, um, to affect recognition systems, which um, some of which try and assess your mood or your personality traits on the basis of your facial expression. Um, and these systems are already in wide commercial use. They're already being used to make decisions of great import every day. But what I've traced out for you so far is a feedback loop um, that discrimination and inequity in tech has really significant material consequences, particularly for underrepresented groups who are already excluded from resources and opportunities. Um, and this reason alone is, is, should be enough for the diversity crisis in AI to be addressed. But in the case of AI, these patterns of discrimination and exclusion reverberate well beyond the workplace and into the wider world. And that's where I want to raise another concern, um, which is that the remedies that are being proposed to discriminatory systems with amplifying harmful practices instead of solving them. So the solution to bias in AI is often proposed as an issue of diversifying the data set. Um, but the end game of that will lead to proposals that result in increased surveillance of the very communities that are most harmed. So for example, um, Uber drivers have to often uh, show their, like take a photo of their face in order to authenticate themselves the security feature to make sure that the person driving the car walking into the account is who they say that they are. Um, now, this system has a really difficult time recognizing the faces of trans people. Um, and so lots of people were getting locked out. They'd have to drive hours to you know, go in person to check into their accounts. Um, and a set of researchers trying to solve this problem went and scraped the data from YouTube videos of people that were undergoing transitioning. Now that's a deeply personal um, experience to go through, and that was done without consent of the people involved for you know, their data to be used in, for that kind of use. So we see an amplification of you know, practices of surveillance in order to solve these other kinds of discrimination problems that often then go on and, and are implemented in systems of surveillance themselves. So rather than deploy quick fixes, we should be asking questions like, what kinds of assumptions about worth, ability, and potential become included into these systems? And who is at the table um, when they were built? Um, so this is the focus of the next stage of my research. You know, this is a very neat presentation of a really messy phenomenon. It's not just like a simple one-to-one -one cycle. There's a lot that goes on in this middle space. And that's a space for, for interrogation. An interrogation that I think social science and humanistic um, approaches to research can have a lot to contribute. Um, so I'm looking at how AI is reshaping how we understand labor and reading this through the lenses of, of race, gender, and ability. A project still in its pretty early phases, but I want to highlight one study that was published by Upturn last year looking specifically at the use of predictive hiring tools across all phases of employment. So this ranges from how job ads are placed and who they're targeted to. Are you going to see you know, a highly uh, remunerative job, or you're going to see lower paid jobs, um, to the scanning and ranking and evaluation of resumes, like the, Google, uh, the Amazon example that I started with, 
um, the use of tools um, in video interviewing that will listen to things like your ums and your pauses and your vocal fry in order to make assessments of what kind of job candidate you are. Um, that's in wide use, by the way. There's some banks that are no longer conducting on-campus interviews and only using video interviewing um, in order to be able to use these tools. Um, tools that make recommendations about what salary you're going to be offered um, and how to uh, evaluate employees when you're in the job. And they found significant biases in all of those, the stages in which these AI systems are used. Um, one of my favorite anecdotes was they talked about a resume screening company that found that its model had identified that having the name Jared and having played high school lacrosse was going to be a very good predictor of success in the job, which clearly had nothing to do with any, like, no positive <laughs> with anything to do with the job. But what that does is it perpetuates uh, certain ideas about culture fit. You know, who is going to be, you know, a good fit for the company, and, and that is going to amplify <coughs> existing discriminatory effects and sometimes in ways that are a lot harder to track and, and make sense of. Most significantly, these biases surface even when tools explicitly ignore race, gender, age, and other protected attributes, because this is an area where we have a lot of anti-discrimination law. But even when you exclude them, you see them emerging through proxy variables. Things like your zip code, things like your name um, can replicate these patterns of inequity um, even when the, the kinds of things that are protected under law are, are taken out of uh, uh, consideration. So throughout this talk, I've highlighted the ways in which what humans do remains infinitely more sophisticated than what these systems provide. But we're still deploying these systems at large even though, uh, as though they're going to be fairer or more objective than what humans can do. And so one thing that I'd like to leave everyone with um, is the need to be wary of automation bias, which is something we're all prone to, this idea that we give outsized weight to the outputs of automated systems, um, despite the expertise that we all hold. It's not to say that we're, we're not flawed. Um, but it can often be much more difficult to understand bias at scale in the way that these systems are built, um, and also the way that trade secrecy is used to make it very difficult to scrutinize them from outside. Um, we also shouldn't give weight to claims that this is our inevitable future. Um, so regulators are um, looking at a variety of forms of algorithmic accountability, in the U.S., we have an Algorithmic Accountability Act before Congress that would require companies to assess whether there are biased or discriminatory outcomes in algorithmic systems. Um, we see discussions about banning the use of facial recognition here in Montreal among members of the City Council. We've seen bans enacted in cities throughout the United States. Um, and we also see moves among tech workers themselves in the face of inaction by their employees. And tech workers are, uh, you know, walking out and trying to construct the kinds of workplaces that they want to take part in, ensuring that they're inclusive of everyone, regardless of race, gender, ability, uh, sexual identity, um, class, or importantly, contract status. Um, and many of these, you know, Google, over half of its employees are employed on contracts. Um, they're, they're in precarious positions. Um, and they're refusing to take part in projects that they see as immoral. Um, so tomorrow in the U.S. we see the first um, walkout by, I think now there's eight major uh, tech companies that are going to be walking out over the environmental impact uh, of uh, what their companies do. And that's the first time we've seen workers from companies come together um, and do a cross-company um, action. So, we could see the tech industry as a, a harbinger for things to come in the future of work, um, both as you know a, a space for possibilities of hope, but also a place where we really have a lot of hard work to, to put in. And I think we should think critically as well about what it means to position folks that are working at tech companies as the locus of change. 
Um, there's reason to think critically about that. And, and so as students, as researchers, and as, as, as educators, I think everyone in this room is uniquely positioned to play a critical role in shaping what that future looks like. Um, so lastly, um, I would be remiss if I did not foreground some of the studies that uh, deeply shaped this work. Um, these are a few that would be a really fantastic place to start. Um, if you go on ANS website, we also put together a playlist that came out of the initial um, research that we did that highlights some of the historical work, um, and you'll be able to find that on the website. Um, but for now, we'll be at that, and so thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah, and also that playlist that Sarah just mentioned is also linked to on the feminist uh, website, the feminist, the series website um, as well. So I think we have some time, like 15 minutes or so for questions, so. Yeah. So thanks for that talk. Um, I'm actually interested in hearing a little bit more about AI now as an institute. Yeah. Like as we know, there's groups like the ACLU or ESF who take a really legally adversarial relationship some liberties. And I'd just be interested in hearing a little bit about how AI now thinks of itself as an organization and how it thinks of itself as being able to um, kind of catalyze change. Aside from research, obviously, yeah, which is um, something important, but are there kind of other modalities at play? That's a really good question. I'll be honest that that's a question that we're kind of working through day by day. You know, we've I've been with AI now for a little over a year now um, as, as an institute, and I think we've existed for like a year and a half, coming up on two years. Um, and we're definitely research first. We are a research institute, but it's research that's, that's devoted toward creating social impact. Um, and obviously, folks like Mary Whitaker, who is a co-founder of AI now, was um, integral in a lot of the tech worker um, activities that uh, we saw at Google and elsewhere. Um, so I think it's it's very much part of the ethos of the Institute in terms of what it looks like in, in practice. I think it's, a, it's sort of a work in progress and we're kind of <coughs> thinking through the ways that research can inform, like, inform change. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really understand why they want to get facial recognition. Okay, um, so I can't speak specifically to Montreal's, um, like the, the, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of highly localized, highly contextualized um, aspects to the way that's being discussed here. Um, there's a number of different reasons why you might want to ban facial recognition. One is um, the ways that facial recognition systems are deployed are often in areas that have significant social impact. Um, they also have, uh, with, with, and I should say, without much accountability for the way that these systems are being developed, they have uh, pretty low rates of accuracy, um, particularly for darker-skinned women. And so if you're using them, for example, in security context, it means that they're going to have disparate impact on certain communities or others. There's also some real privacy considerations. Um, so it incentivizes the widespread deployment of surveillance um, and, and then adding to that decision making. Um, so there's, there's a number of, of, I think, really morally issues. Um, at, and at the moment, we don't really have any form of accountability. So the first step has been to um, institute a, a moratorium so we can figure out ways of building the systems of accountability. Yeah. Um. Uh, you said it's problematic uh, that a lot of companies now can go into like, smaller communities or say use YouTube to gather facial data for trans people, transitioning people. Um, is there any better way to do that quickly to unbias these systems like, in a quick time frame besides maybe being a little bit intrusive? So I'll be clear, this is a really gnarly problem. It's really complex, it's really hard. Also I think as the as I highlighted as well, 
diversifying the data set doesn't necessarily fix the problem. Um, a lot of the issues with discriminatory systems have to do with the system design itself, the model itself, the kinds of inferences that it purports to make. Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, gender recognition systems, uh, one of the, the primary uses, use cases for gender recognition systems is that it cuts down on compute power. Like, essentially, if you're trying to recognize a face, if you can first identify the gender of the face, you can cut out half of the data that you have to run through. But implicit in that model is that gender is a binary phenomenon, and that fundamentally erases the experiences of folks who do not identify with, with the gender binary. Then you look at how it's deployed in practice, um, for example, in security contexts, it marks certain bodies as being higher risk. So there's all kinds of, of points at which discrimination occurs that's beyond the data set. So that's, that's reason one that that's kind of a, a flawed um, approach because it's a very narrow fix to what's really a broader social problem. Um, two is the issue of consent. Um, and this is a really difficult issue because of um, a variety of reasons you already pointed on, like the economic challenges. It's very costly to produce data sets, and so there's an incentive to try and you know, use trained models over and over. Um, there's a lot of incentives to secondary uses. We haven't had a broad social conversation about um, what consent um, to be a part of a data set looks like. Um, and, you know, you might consent to the authentication example, but that data set could then be used to build, you know, for military applications that you don't consent to. Um, so I don't think that there is a, a quick fix answer. Um, I think that it's a, it's a much deeper um, challenge. One place that I think you might look to for a generative model, um, Illinois has a biometric identification privacy act that um, not only puts the onus on those using biometrics to take into account the privacy considerations of those in, you know, the, the people whose biometric data is being used, but also provides a near-term and long-term um, ability to revoke consent for your data to be included in a data set. Um, that also leads to different kinds of company practices and processes and different kinds of design to technical systems to make that possible. Um, so I think that there's, there are other downstream social impacts that, that having um, consent in mind can enable. Um, I'll take one from Sure. Uh, so in the first study that you did, uh, the review of uh, diversity in the field, mm -hmm. um, you mentioned a lot about pipelines, and I'm sort of wondering if there was anything that you came across about affinity groups. Um, like these are becoming more and more popular within AI right now. Mm -hmm. um, lots of these affinity groups are like popping up at AI conferences and yes. stuff like this. Um, I know Wimmel has been around for like a long time. But I don't know if there's been any research on like whether or not there's some sort of effect of those. If so, what type of effect? I have not seen that research either. Um, and I should be clear that the vast majority of the pipeline literature is focused on computer science overall right. and not specific to AI. I had to really dig um, by looking at particular programs to get any sort of data on that. Um, so no, I don't. I don't think that we have very much there. I know that we're seeing the the growth, the you know, the groups Black and AI being another one. I think NeurIPS is going to have NeurIPS is, is one of the um, the it's the neuroinformation <coughs> processing symposium. It's one of the, the you know flagship conferences in the field of AI, and, and we're seeing a growth of the affinity groups there. So I think it's a good space to watch. Um, I think we have a question. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, with algorithms, they lower uh, things like race and gender, they were still discriminated because of like proxy variables. Mm -hmm. Can you explain more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, a proxy variable is essentially kind of a stand-in. So um, you might be excluding demographic categories like race. Let's say you have a number of different labels for, for a piece of, of data. You might be excluding race from the model. Um, but you can still see racially discriminatory impacts that result 
from um, things that effectively work as a stand-in for race because of historical forms of discrimination. So I'll give you an example of that. Car insurance um, is uh, more expensive in certain zip codes than others. And uh, studies have shown that that is a racially discriminatory impact because of historical practices of redlining, of, of um, making it uh, near impossible for, um, for uh, African-American people in the U.S. to be able to buy homes in certain districts. Um, so that's what I mean by a proxy variable, that it sort of sneaks in as a result of, you know, wider historical patterns of, of discrimination. Does that yeah. make sense? I have a big question that I don't imagine you have an answer to, but I'd love to ask it anyway. Sure. And I'll have a, um, like a train of thought um, first, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so um, there's a person named Matt Gerson. Mm -hmm. Some people in this room know him. And he has this really cool um, notion of socio-technical security. And it's the idea that um, there's um, security like of systems, and like, that presupposes that data has integrity and should be saved, and information shouldn't be tampered with. Mm -hmm. Socio-technical security would um, prioritize the individual and the, and the harm that could be caused to them. And so he was able to look at social media companies and how their business models, which require like an attention economy, has resulted in disinformation. And so I, I now see how there's a you know a business model problem with AI companies because they're trying to go to IPO, get Series whatever funding, to get bought out like, right away. And as a data scientist friend pointed out to me recently, they're actually really just trying to create like, tools of utility that are they're just literally useful. So how do we incentivize the considerations of what you're talking about when they're just trying to go and make as much money as fast as possible? How do we change data scientists who are just curious and are by problems? You know, those are two big issues, but do you have any ideas about how to change those incentives? I mean, regulation is one, one possible way to change the incentives. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm wary of any approaches that sort of take the standpoint of, like, it's just, you know, evil engineers that are, you know, out to, to create harm, which is not what you're saying. Yeah. But I think that that's often what people gravitate towards, is that, like, these people are trying to do bad stuff, and they have to stop them from doing bad stuff. These are really, really complex social phenomena that are entangled with very deep and long-lasting historical patterns of, of discrimination. And so I think um, addressing these challenges probably needs to start there, um, honestly, and also to, to take those dynamics into account in the ways in which they're deployed. So, you know, if we know that there are the, the data that uh, police are uh, producing on communities is, you know, tied in with dirty policing tactics historically, then don't feed that data directly into, you know, predictive policing systems without, you know, acknowledging that that data is going to then perpetuate those practices. Um, that's kind of the focus of a, a report that um, my colleague, a uh, law review article that my colleague Rashida Richardson wrote called Dirty Data. Um, don't sort of leave decisions to these systems or, or, or Position these systems as though they're going to be making decisions in ways that are more objective and less biased, which I think is both how they tend to be adopted, um, and they're also how they tend to be sold. So a lot of the hiring systems are positioned as uh, less biased, more objective, than the, the fix to diversity problems, when really what they are are more efficient ways of going through more resumes without, um, without addressing the problems of, of bias. So I, it, that totally did not answer your question. I know. Um, yeah, I mean that is that is the big one. That's yeah. that's kind of what's driving all of all of the work. Uh, yeah. In the back. Uh, see the term scalable AI come up more and more often. Trying to have these systems in place where you can have some introspection into the models and try to find biases before sending out into the real world and causing. Is this something that we've uh, seen also in the research regarding the 
Yes, yeah, so for those who couldn't hear, he's asking about explainable AI, and, and that's sort of, um, and I'm, I'm guaranteed going to get this wrong because it's not an area that I'm an expert in by any means, but it's, it's these efforts to render algorithmic systems um, more transparent or more understandable or interpretable um, so that you can identify problems before they get deployed in practice. Um, it's certainly an active area. I can't really comment too much on it. I do have colleagues at AI now that are looking at explainable AI. Um, I know that in the um, bias space, we do see this move, particularly by companies, to release sort of fairness toolkits that purport to be able to like kind of plug and play models where you you should be able to sort of like fix bias by like tweaking variables, and that's that's the the solution. Um, and those, I think, are flawed for all of the reasons that I, that I described, because you have proxy variables that crop up because of the, if you look from, you know, from system design to deployment, there's all kinds of places where um, discrimination can emerge that are not just simply statistical. Um, but does that, so that at least partially answer? So it does yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Can you describe at a high level what goes into building the reports you guys build, like including the discrimination? <coughs> What's that process look like? Sure. Um, right. So I started. Um, the the objective of the report was to try and understand the landscape of, of gender, race, and power. Um, and so I started by uh, purposely trying to scope it really widely and look across disciplines. So I uh, ran lots of searches on uh, different kinds of research databases. I looked at syllabi. I snowball sampled. So when I started with a set of studies, I would look at who they were citing and then look at who they were citing to, to build out this you know, really um, robust body of, of data. Um, I did everything that I could to try and find the like, little holes um, and, and and plug in gaps and read as much as possible of it to work it out more. Um, to get into like the, the methods, I then use thematic coding in my notes to identify what are the um, what are the themes across um, across the studies um, and use that to uh, build out the, the report. Um, that was specific to this. It's not necessarily the same as um, other reports. I know that AI now annual reports are, are more of a collective effort where we all have you know different things that we bring to the table and sort of work together to build up um, our understanding of these issues. Yeah. Uh, and so with the diversification of data sets, which you said wasn't always effective, uh, how much of a role do you think the diversification of the people sitting around the table could play in dissemination practices and Really good question. Um, I think it's a really significant um, aspect. I think that it matters tremendously what uh, people are empowered to do and what kind of workplaces they're working in. Um, so one of the problems with the pipeline approach if, is if you don't fix like a toxic or exclusionary workplace, you're kind of like feeding more diverse people into places where they're going to then have their ideas discounted, where they're then going to be paid less, where they're not promoted. Um, I mentioned under-leveling. That's a, a phenomenon that we see across the industry where um, women and people of color might come in with a certain set of skills and they're hired at job categories that are lower than those of, of others. Um, and that has very long downstream effects about being able to be promoted. And, and so the experience in the space really matters um, very much as well. Um, it's also not only about uh, identity categories, it's about how different kinds of skills are valued. Um, so, like, there's, there's sometimes a privileging of technical expertise uh, over other forms of expertise, and having people from social sciences and communities backgrounds can be really valuable in developing systems because um, of being able to, to bring lenses to ask questions about what products are being built and what the long-term implications of those, those products are. So that matters a lot as well.
Yeah. Uh, do you foresee a uh, sort of culture of accountability emerging in these tech companies, or do you think political and legal intervention will kind of always be needed to ensure we get to that point? I mean, I think we are seeing a lot of instances where we have workers organizing and and companies making concessions. Um, so an example of that was the end to forced arbitration at, uh, at both Google and Microsoft, um, which was a, you know, there was a pre-existing policy that if you had um, a discrimination or a sexual harassment claim that you would have to go into arbitration with the company, you couldn't sue them, you couldn't go into a class action lawsuit against the company, those, those policies no longer exist. So people who experience harassment or discrimination can sue. Um, they can actually get meaningful action and that action is going to be undertaken in the full public eye. Um, so we see some, some moves there from the inside for sure. So you do you know, uh, like, uh, so you're mainly talking about like, uh, the situation in the U.S. and in Western countries. Um, I wanted to, you know more about like some Eastern countries or like different in the different systems. Like, what, what is what is like in those systems? Yeah, no, it's a really it's a really critical question. Um, I know much less. Um, one of the studies, the one about the 18% um, of the presenters at AI conferences were women, that study does look at diversity um, of, by country. Um, now, there are some methodological questions about how countries identify and how um, gender is identified across country because they're attributing gender on the basis of name, which is like not ideal methods. Like, of the methods really matters with, with these kinds of studies. Um, so there's a little bit of data um, that I've come across, not a ton. Um, one thing that I have been looking at is the deployment of different kinds of systems in different countries. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't have as, as much information. It's also partly um, because to speak to your, your methods question, this is often a really opaque space. Um, and so we're having to be really creative in how we go about studying them. So trying to look at marketing materials, patents are one place that I found to be pretty rich for trying to find out information about like what companies are doing. Um, you have to be creative in how to get information about what kinds of systems are being deployed. Um, and, and that's what I'm <coughs> Okay, well, thank you yeah. everyone for coming. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. Transcripts for every episode are available at our website, disruptingdisruptions.com. This episode is also available in video format with captions on the series' YouTube channel, with videos also embedded at disruptingdisruptions.com. The Feminist and Accessible Publishing, Communications, and Technologies Practices Speaker and Workshop Series was founded and organized by Dr. Alex Ketchum of McGill University. The series was made possible thanks to two connection grants from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies of McGill University, as well as McGill's Department of History and Classical Studies, Media at McGill, the William Dawson Fund, the Moving Image Research Laboratory, the Sustainability Projects Fund, the Dean of Arts Development Fund of McGill, the McGill Writing Center, and Digital Initiatives of the McGill University Library. Further support comes from Concordia University's Milieu Institute for Art, Culture, and Technology, the Institute for Indigenous Futures, Machine Agencies, the Algorithmic Media Observatory, the Intersectionality Research Hub, the Black Feminist Futures Working Group, and Cinema Politica. From the Université de Montréal, we received funding from the Research Institute Mila. Additional support comes from Requef, Réseau, Québécois, and Études Féministes, the Mutech IMG Festival, Element AI, and Les Grillons, Montreal's Feminist Bookstore. 
The theme music is from Lobo Loco's Old Dance House Long on the Free Music Archive and Inspector J's Bell Counter A. Wave of freesound.org. Thank you to the series research assistants, Ty, Judish, and Astrid Moore, for their assistance in producing the podcast. Please subscribe for future episodes.